2: for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist podcast. My name is Nathan Gilmore. I'm an associate professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I'm joined this morning from Kansas by Dr. David Grubbs, professor of English at Central Christian College. David, how are you doing?
0: Oh, pretty decent. Uncaffeinated, so I may be cranky. Okay, all right. Well,
2: I, I think the listeners like that. And also on the line from the Great White North, Saint Bonifacius, Minnesota, it's Michael Farmer. Michael, how are you doing? I'm good. And I should say, Doctor Michael Farmer, Assistant Professor of English. I I shouldn't introduce one of you and not the other. How are you doing, Michael? I'm am good. I mean, you're gonna
1: you're gonna pay for that mistake, but
2: well, I I always do. I always do. <laughs> Hey, listeners, first of all, you'll notice that David Grubbs is back. We're very happy for that. It's only Yay. for a week right now because <laughs> David is going to be traveling next week, but after that, we're going to try to nail, nail his feet to the floor and make him record <laughs> this podcast with us. Uh, I do want to say before we get rolling that we've got new episodes of Book of Nature, our science and mathematics podcast. We've got new episodes of Christian Feminist podcast. Uh, we've got new interviews. Just about every week from here till April on Christian Humanist Profiles, where we interview interesting new authors and interrogate them from a Christian perspective. Uh, So be sure not only to subscribe to this one, we're glad you do that, by the way, but also check out our other shows. Now, if you follow our Facebook page, and if you don't, then you should, uh, you know that we've got an essay from one of my favorites, Stanley Hauerwas, on tap today. This is a 1991 essay that he wrote in response to rampant cheating at Duke University. Uh, so if there's any Carolina fans out there, go ahead and take this opportunity to write into the podcast and say, well, of course, there's cheating at Duke. Uh, but I want to get right into the essay because this is just a very, very thick essay. Lots of, lots of uh, books that we like to talk about cited here. But Michael, in his whirlwind of an opening section... Stan Hauerwas doesn't bulldoze some of the core notions of the modern university so much as he strafes them as he flies by. Uh, which concepts does Hauerwas destabilize on his way to his six theses, and how does that shake-up set up what's to come?
1: I heard an a, uh, uh, explanation of the book of Amos once that, uh, that this this opening made me think of and I'm sorry I'm stuttering so much it is very early here <laughs> <laughs> um so in the book of Amos Amos uh starts talking about all the nations around Israel all the ones that they would have hated Assyria and Babylon and whoever and uh then he starts getting closer and closer to Israel and he hits Judea and you can just kind of feel his audience's mood change that is how i felt reading uh the opening paragraphs of this essay because i got very excited at first he's talking about how uh ethics is not this discipline that is meant to teach values he says because in our culture values denote personal preferences in contrast to objective facts and he doesn't believe in objective facts so he doesn't need to believe in in uh personal preferences and and so uh i 'm with him there. I got very excited, and then he then he starts talking about how the modern university is built on this idea that students should be taught enough in order to make up their own minds, which is uh, what I often say about my classes and he says <laughs> uh, he says, "I cannot think of anything that invites you to be more in the conformist mode of the American proposition than for you to believe that you should make up your own mind. That attitude defeats rather than sustains." Education and so he presents this new or perhaps old. I'm not. am not enough of a theorist of the history of education to tell you which one it is. This this vision of education as kind of a uh, apprenticeship, uh, mm-hmm. where you you work with a master builder, a uh, a master learner, I, I guess is what we would be called. I don't know. I feel weird calling myself a master, but maybe that's because I too am a American conformist. <laughs> um you you work with this this you know master and then gradually you were brought up to his or her level and mm-hmm. and that is his vision of education and as he notes it it is hard to think of a vision that is more 180 degrees opposed to uh what is typical in american education
2: mm-hmm. yeah i i think it's interesting and david i'm going to bring you in on this in just a second but I. Uh, yeah, I mean when when you're thinking about a lot of the courses that we teach on a college level, I mean, I think you're probably right. Until we And again, what I like about this essay is that it makes me confront the actual structure of what I do uh because I mean, if I'm honest about it, when I get, you know, a room full of 18-year-olds in a freshman comp class, I really don't want them to decide whether they should name their agents in the subject and their action in the verb. I really don't want them to decide whether they should have a central controlling idea or if they should just be able to wander. I mean, I am acting as a sort of master of composition, if you will, or, you know, a master of the liberal arts since I do hold that degree, um, among others. Uh, But, but, you know, it's one of those things where I am trying to bring them into a way of existence in relationship to words that – my working assumption is they didn 't have before i mean david is that is that too uh hierarchical of me am i being too uh <laughs> i don't know, elitist there
0: well i mean to to go back to that well to to contrast with the brickling metaphor mm-hmm. um he 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 says that that learning is not primarily about simply telling someone about a thing that they didn't know before, and now that they've been told it, they know it. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, as if if teaching largely consists of um, you, the teacher, having a pile of discrete things you know in a heap, and uh, your efficiency in teaching consists in how fast you can shovel those things from your pile into their pile.
2: Right, Paulo Freire's banking metaphor of education.
0: Right, but we're 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 keeping it blue collar because <laughs> that's where Stan's taking us. Uh huh. Um, <laughs> you know, instead, you know, he 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 says, you know, regarding the bricklaying that Michael brought up, that you don't just learn how to lay bricks. You know, you might learn. He says you might be told how to hold a trowel or how to hold a brick, but the bricklaying itself is something that you learn by engaging in the labor of bricklaying with someone who knows what the telos of bricklaying is.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: someone who can gauge what is good for, you know, what is good for your level of work now, but also what is the, what is the good that, that the, the bricklaying arts aspire to uh, mm-hmm. as well. You know cathedrals and things like that. I imagine. Sure. So it's it's not about getting things from one heap, one person's heap to another person's heap. You know, facts you know, facts you own in that sense, but of becoming. Hmm. So. So yeah, though uh, I, I I do think I I, I don't know maybe. When you when you were talking about the grammar and you don't want them deciding, you know, making up their own mind about gra- how grammar works and things like that, uh huh. Um, the way I the the way I I I, t- I talk to my students is is that there are things that you don't know and there are skills that you haven't mastered yet. That when you master them, you will be able to make choices.
1: Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, sure. yeah. That that makes sense.
0: Choices yeah. that you can't make now because you aren't the person who can make those intelligent choices. Right, right. And, I th- you and honestly, you aren't oh, smart ahead. enough to have agency in your craft yet.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and I think ultimately, Howarwas would agree with that, David. I think that he's overshooting rhetorically here because yeah. if if he didn't, he wouldn't be Stan Howarwas. Is this? <laughs> can, can we take a break for a second?
0: Yeah. Is this normal, Stan Howarwas? Absolutely. Oh God. <laughs> this is your this is your favorite
1: you've been doing you've been doing this podcast for five and a half years with Nathan and you're not used to people coming out uh shooting with both hands
0: <laughs> well I didn't know where he got it from I thought yeah, he got, well, I well, thought he got it from watching professional wrestling as a child <laughs> but, but no he gets it from Stanley I love this I love guy my... is the crankiest of old men and this was Twenty-five what? years ago, or something. Let's
2: not make this either or, David. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to claim Harawas and professional wrestling. To be fair, I, wrestling,
3: <laughs>
0: okay.
2: huh? Okay. <laughs> oh shoot! But yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess you know, David just had an epiphany that uh, I, I've actually taken on the style of a toned-down Stan
0: Harawas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you Oh. <vague.
3: laughs>
0: uh, huh. Yeah, dear, you know, dear listeners, if you've never read any Stanley Hauerwas, oh, my God. He's like <laughs> the crankiest grandpa. <laughs> he really
2: is. And, and you know, one of the things b- before we get to, I mean, the prime example of cranky grandpa nature here, uh, Michael, I mean, one of the things that I noticed about, you know, the account that David just gave, and I think Hauerwas would agree with it, is that, you know, it's it's very, very influenced by Mac- Alistair McIntyre's vision. Take a of, shot. What now? <laughs>
1: I, I was just <laughs> instructing our listeners to take a shot in the Christian humanist drinking game.
2: Uh, where, you know, you start off as an unformed practitioner and then the aim of the practice is to shape you into a certain mode of excellence. I mean, that seems to be what he assumes at every turn here, right? Yeah, no, right. absolutely. This
1: is this yeah. is heavily McIntyrean.
2: Right. By and his own how, admission. Go ahead.
1: By, by his own admission, he quotes McIntyre.
2: Oh, yeah. Dozens and, and, of times. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's just this essay. I mean, every book he writes, he is, you know, saying that he gets at most of his good stuff from McIntyre. Although McIntyre shouldn't be held responsible for, you know, shaping ha- Hauerwas.
3: <laughs> right.
2: Well, David, I want to get to one of these examples of the cranky old man because uh, I love this stuff. <laughs> this essay, you know, consists largely of his six theses about honor in education, and the first one is, and I quote. Cheating is a more serious crime than murder for those involved in teaching and learning, close quote. And in true Hauerwas fashion, after dropping that rhetorical bomb, he goes on for a page without mentioning cheating. <laughs> so bring Bricklang back in here. What does bricklang have to do with the proper citation of research sources?
0: Oh, me. Uh, well, okay, so after he's um, sort of like, sort of casually wandered through what he regards as ill-considered theories of teaching and learning and sort of toppled him over with his old man cane. Um, (laughs) he's, he's set up this, uh, this master apprentice model, right? Um, which I can only assume he's doing because he doesn't know about ninjas or Jedis, (laughs) but, but that's okay. We'll stick with bricklayers. That's cool. Mm -hmm. Um, But, again, to return, you know, to kind of resurrect the point I made before, for him learning is not about acquiring but about becoming. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not just about getting facts you don't know yet or getting some discrete skills you don't know yet but about becoming the master. And you only become a master by being in the company of the master. Mm -hmm. Now, that, that leads to his, I thought, interesting still not entirely sure how i think about it because yeah what well, anyway but his idea about uh of of creative ideas he says are not property that's not why we need footnotes mhm um we're not even i'm not even going to get into that but uh for him the footnote is about acknowledging your masters um, it's about a kind of decorum within the craft of of honoring those who have shaped you into the craftsman craftsperson mm-hmm. sorry that you are and uh and so when you when you cite you're basically saying this this is a master from whom i've learned this is a master um whose whose skill, whose technique is, is, is evident in the technique that you are seeing now. Um, so cheating, in other words, um, short circuits, that whole master, master student becoming a master mode of education by permitting someone to steal the works of the masters and pass them off as their own mm-hmm. um
2: pretending to be a master when one has not become a master
0: yes yes there there is no there is no moment of becoming it's 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 simply a matter of seeming mm-hmm. and you know simultaneously every one of our listeners who is in graduate school had imposter syndrome imposter syndrome simultaneously right mm mm-hmm. mhm um, you know, I, I know I did when I got to that point, I'm like, am I a master?
1: Well, the ones, the, the ones who didn't, the ones who didn't were essentially sociopaths.
0: Yeah.
3: <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, I, yeah. So, so essentially the reason why cheating is worse than murder concerning the activity of learning and teaching he says that you know teaching that cheating is not worse than murder on universities therefore go kill people on universities because that's not as bad um he, he's saying that that you know someone could get shot you know god forbid someone could get shot on our campuses today but it would not destroy the institution of learning it would not cut off the the plant of learning at the root in the way that cheating does by breaking the cycle of becoming and replacing instead an illegitimate seeming. Uh, Have I missed anything that needs to be brought out?
2: Yeah, Michael, would you add anything to that or qualify anything?
1: Just that all all of this is heavily built on McIntyre's conception of uh, goods and institutions and practices. And and Grubbs is right. What's, What's so bad about cheating is it's directly uh directly opposed to the the practice of of learning and so it undermines the institution and thus makes uh goods impossible.
2: Right, right. So, you know, to and and again, as I said earlier, I mean, he's overshooting with his rhetoric, I mean, to basically wake readers up. Uh I've actually heard him deliver a version of this as a public lecture and I mean, you can really hear the chatter in the audience just instantly cease when he says, you know, cheating is worse than murder, and then he'll pause <laughs> right there, and then he'll say, for those engaged in teaching and learning. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a, hey, there, there's definitely some showmanship here as well as uh, a rhetorical overshot. Uh, but, yeah, so, I mean, you know, and and this honestly is, is something that I've incorporated into my own, you know, talks about plagiarism and such when I teach classes. Uh, I usually don't say cheating is worse than murder because... My students would immediately go to my president and say that I'm encouraging people to murder people, or they, or uh, they would murder you.
3: <laughs> yeah, that too, that too.
2: We were uh, going to cheat, but, <laughs> uh, but I do tell them that you know uh, when you cheat, you basically render the college not a college, and that you know that's not just something that you know is something you get one over on me, uh, but ultimately it diminishes what everyone here. Is doing and has done and will do. Uh, so you know, I, I try to you know get get fairly boethian on them, but we'll bring Boethius in later. So mm-hmm. listeners, get your shot
0: glasses ready, uh, Michael. <laughs> but okay, the first, point, point 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 of order. Did I miss when we established a, a, a Christian humanist drinking game?
1: It was a offhand reference I made last week when Nathan brought Alistair McIntyre up in a uh, in an unrelated. <laughs>
2: It was not unrelated. <laughs>
0: <laughs> not, if you, not if you related it. Oh, well, okay, well not, okay, not, okay.
1: not in the sense that Nathan's practice is quoting Alistair McIntyre. <laughs> and well, I, would, I would say the drinking game is a external good to that practice.
2: <laughs> well, anyway, Michael, if the first thesis meanders, then the second is like unto the first. Quote, there is, uh, there is honor among thieves... But that does not mean that honor is a bad idea. Close quote. When Howard talks about honor codes, he runs right past that notion and straight into Dante territory. What's going on with his discussion of honor codes?
1: Well, I, uh, I have no idea what you mean by Dante territory, so I'm going to let okay. you, I'm going <laughs> to let you talk about that part. All right. All right. Uh, honor is not enough. But honor is good It seems to be what he's saying Because he he says all sorts of institutions To return to that McIntyrean language All sorts of institutions have honor And he mentions Because I I guess this was before Godwin's Law was formulated He mentions the SS has honor It was 1991 to be fair I would have gone I think probably with the KKK Which is an an organization that sees itself as being built on honor And so that demonstrates what happens when honor becomes the highest virtue uh, but, but as a, as a virtue among other virtues, it is absolutely necessary. I think his point is, and then he goes on this kind of, uh, I, I hesitate to call it off topic. Cause I know as soon as I do, you're going to tell me how, uh, <laughs> how, <laughs> how on topic it really is. But he, uh, he goes off on this thing about what makes a university, a Christian university. And it's kind of a weird, uh, Detour because he teaches at Duke, which I, I don't think anybody considers a Christian university, and he is he's delivering this lecture at Georgetown, which uh, maybe a few people do. It is a Catholic university, but I don't think it particularly has that reputation. And then, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it actually applies much more to people like us than to probably the people sitting in the Georgetown audience because it, it's it's you know it's he he says it's not about having to take theology classes and it's not about student life. He says if if you're if you're Counting on your student life uh, department to make your, uni- your university a Christian university, you've already lost the battle.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And he says, interestingly enough, that how you make a Christian university is by hiring people who fit your mission, I suppose. Mm-hmm. When someone is being considered for employment, he says, Deans need to be concerned about the kind of person they are hiring. It is not enough that they are good in their discipline. How and what they teach makes all the difference. And then he, he doesn't actually uh go into a whole lot more detail about how those decisions should be made. And maybe that's for the best, but the point is you have to you have to create your honorable university from the bottom up, I guess is the best way to say that. You the the bricks. Or from
2: from the heart outwards I would get I would phrase it.
1: Right. Yeah. The bricks from which you build your building have to be stable. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, and, and so so he he goes back to McIntyre again and uh, and he he talks about how instead of looking for this objectivity that actually keeps us from having productive discussions we should we should build our universities on a kind of beneficial and benevolent subjectivity. Um, mm-hmm. Then he connects this to post-structuralism, uh, and, and you, you see once again the degree to which Derrida and, and McIntyre kind of converge in their in their distrust of, of this notion of objectivity. Oh, sure. And, wh- and what he says is there is no objective knowledge apart from the traditions that sustain it. And so th- the implication, the university needs to be part of one of those traditions so that it can mm-hmm. have some sort of uh, – ability to speak into the lives of its students Mm -hmm. Um, and this this is going to involve disagreements and arguments and uh, but ultimately it is the only situation under which the kind of honor he is after can even be sustained Mm -hmm. now you can tell me what that has to do with Dante
2: well I will in just a moment but I mean I I think that draws on McIntyre's notion of a tradition too as a Sustained disagreement about what it means to practice the tradition, right? I mean, if 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 there's no reason to disagree anymore about what it means to be a professor, that means that there probably isn't any point to being a professor anymore.
1: So when we argue about the designated hitter rule, we're actually preserving baseball.
2: Right, right. Even though the people who instituted it were attempting to destroy it. Right. Well, the, where I saw Dante here, Michael, was uh, when he said uh, – let me find it here uh, – education is not about supplying wants but teaching new wants. Providing this kind of education requires the university to be supported by institutions that stand against our culture's sentimentalities about happiness. Um and so, I mean, you know, I I saw that as very purgatorial in character, right? I yeah, mean, yeah, that makes sense. It's, it's not that you, you know, don't seek beatitude. It's that you don't have the discipline yet to realize what true beatitude is as opposed to false uh, beatitude imposters, if you will.
1: And I, I thought of the Nicomachean ethics – um, uh-huh. where, where he yeah. says that, that part of learning moral virtue, I think is the term he uses, uh, part of learning moral virtue is about learning to feel pleasure and pain at the correct things, not about trying to yeah. get rid of pleasure and pain.
2: Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And I, and I think that's very Dante and as well as Aristotelian.
1: W- well, uh, I, think, I think Dante may have, may have been a fan of a theologian who was a fan of Aristotle.
2: And he also might have referred to Aristotle as the chief of all who know. Sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Could have happened might have happened i don't know you know inferno you know canto 4 maybe couldn't say uh david what would you add on this meandering thesis
0: um i i don't know i think you've got the i think you guys have got that one taped taped fairly well the only uh the, the only thing is i, I think it would be very very interesting to see Howard Wasse's, uh Universities need to be hiring faculty who are a kind of tradition match with mm-hmm. the uh, with the perspective that they want their university to kind of represent and uphold. Mm-hmm. Um, I would be very in, in, interested to see because uh, there there have been some some pretty. Uh, Public noticeable instances of things like that um, mm-hmm. in within the past fifteen years that made a whole lot of ac- academics you know um, kind of melt down simultaneously
1: Krubz, can you and, can you tell me what you 're thinking of i can't i can 't put this together i
0: 'm um, thinking i 'm thinking primarily of, uh, of of evangelical schools um in particular a number of southern baptist schools that uh let go um let go faculty who would not uh sign off on uh statements of faith or things like that
2: gotcha mm-hmm. right I, yeah i, I was which, thinking that too al moler's you know uh changes that he made to uh which one is, is it just southern baptist theological yeah, seminary yeah, in yeah, Louisville? yeah it's, yeah at, it's southern
0: I mean, the, th- the thing is, is you know, I mean, how how would those same people react if if they if the response was just just doing what Stan Howarwass said, man?
3: Yeah, because
0: I get the feeling that Hauerwas is someone that a lot of the people who didn't like that move would see as on their side, mm-hmm. in some senses.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I mean, and this is why you know, again. One of the things I like about Harawas is that he never purports to be the last word. Uh, he always very flagrantly and, and I would say joyfully overshoots his position, uh, basically inviting dissent precisely along that kind of track, David. So uh, I, mean, I think you're right. That, I think That's well,
0: true. Uh, but this particular essay is not a call to discussion. It's a call to action, which means at some point somebody has to have the last word and then do something. Yeah,
2: but he's also a guest speaker at Georgetown, a university okay. <laughs> where he has no formal power. So, I mean, and, and again, That's I mean, this too. is one of the things that just drives people up the wall about Harawas and, of course, endears him to me because I am one <laughs> of those uh, sociopaths that Michael talked about recently, um, that, you know, he does, I think, I mean, by the form of his rhetoric, invite that disagreement. Mm, okay. But, uh, you know, again, I, I tend to read him that way. That's probably why I remain... A fan of his, so, well, well, David, I, w- I want to keep the Aristotelian direction going. Uh, when we get to the third thesis, here's how he phrases it: "Quote the fact that we have an honor code, or should have an honor code, at a university, does not mean that we are a corrupt community or institution." Close quote. Uh, what does this
0: one add to the rest of the essay so far? This one was it, it's 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 shorter than the others so far. Um, I, I don't, I don't know, I don't know whether, I don't know whether uh, is running out of steam or becoming aware of time, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> or, or that he's already um, sort of set in place the, the larger structures, the larger ideas that he needs to build on. So now in these later, these later ones, all he has to do is just sort of tip his hat at moves he's already made one of the things that he's taking to task is the idea that cheaters who cheat only che- only hurt themselves um they yeah. don't hurt, mm-hmm. they don't hurt others um and he's already established no um cheating undercuts the the whole notion of a university mm-hmm. um so in so so Oh how do I say this and not just read him um, <laughs> the The resistance to an honor code that says no these these wicked actions um, are only isolated in their effects um, is also resisting the idea that um, that all of us have the potential to be wicked in those ways. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that even if the act of cheating were an isolated, wicked act whose ramifications, you know, whose ripples went no further than the soul of the individual who commits it, mm-hmm. um, we are all potentially the soul who commits it. Right. Even if the act itself was isolated, um, the thing from which the act grows is, is not itself isolated. Um, he says, as Christians, we should realize that if most of us are given an opportunity, we will certainly do wrong. And even more, we must learn to call that sin and we need other people to keep us honest. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: So, so an honor code is, is then necessary to keep an institution good because, uh, it, it reminds us that we are all in that position. The cheater is not isolated. We're all potential cheaters. Um, but also, it leads us to live live within. Um, well, he says codes can become simply law if they're divorced from the practices that give them moral intelligibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so he do, he doesn't just want to sort of set up um, set up that kind of system. But instead, trying to, I, I, I guess, instill in members of a community that you you live within a particular set of moral principles. This is what should be governing you in your in, in your in your inner life and in your life, um, you know, with others. And this code embodies what this community is about. So that the honor code is the honor code is is in some senses a tangible conscience.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And I've tried to use as few Hauerwas words as possible. Do I, Have I still said Hauerwas things?
2: Well, I mean, we are talking about a Hauerwas essay, so I mean, I, I think that's <laughs> a fair thing to do. Um, Michael, is there anything you'd add to that account? Because this was a short section.
1: No, I think Grubbs pretty much covered it.
2: Yeah. I mean, about the only thing I'd, I'd say is, I mean, to draw a parallel between a, a university's honor code and something like the Decalogue in the Torah of Moses, right? I mean, uh, to observe those prohibitions is not sufficient to make one a morally exemplary person. But in the complex practice of deciding what is morally good, it draws certain things as out of bounds, right? So in other words, you know, if if you start to get the notion that, you know, uh what god ultimately wants for me to be happy and for me to be happy i need my neighbor's wife well no you can't do that <laughs> <laughs> nope. you know uh you know god wants me you know not to be under the thumb of the wicked my neighbor is wicked so i'm just going to you know shove in the knife well no you can't do that right so i mean it, it it's one of those things i think that he is really even though he doesn't really mention the bible here he's taking a biblical turn here in that he's saying that you know the honor code doesn't mean that we all have you know that the only reason we don't plagiarize papers is fear there might be good reasons but if our good reasons give out fear's not a bad thing to fall back on right
1: calvin says something very similar in the institutes all right go he says he says that that Believing in God because you're afraid to go to hell is is not a bad thing it's a it's a, a fine place to start it's a little bit like uh is it kohlberg the 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 development of of virtue where you end up doing the right thing for its own sake
2: yeah yeah the uh the developmental ethical theorist yeah uh-huh
1: so i i you know that's just what I was thinking as you were going through that you that that there there are better reasons for doing the right thing but doing the right thing if it if it really is its own reward we should allow people to do the right thing because they're afraid
2: right right and now that you phrase it that way michael i mean it's a very platonic notion of law right you know it confers the benefits of right reason on us when our right reason fails
0: exactly
1: <laughs> and and then you know by by doing by doing the right thing, we get that right reason back, right? We we we, yeah. we, we mm-hmm. build up to it. Mm-hmm.
0: It becomes a trellis on which weak weak consciences can can stay up
3: mm-hmm.
0: until they become strong enough to stand themselves.
2: Right. We rely on a trellis. Be a my, lion, not a melis. If we and, only had the noise. Oh,
1: good God! <laughs> um, and then. Huh. <laughs> This this also demonstrates the degree to which all of us are teachers of ethics because because of the penalties uh, you know assigned by our syllabuses for not doing the right thing, whether that be cheating or procrastinating or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. We we kind of get them started on this fear to love road.
2: Right. Right. Well, Michael, on to thesis four. Quote, if students do not cheat, if they do not use someone else's material on a test, or do not use material in a paper without due acknowledgement, it does not necessarily follow that they are persons of honor, but it is not a bad place to start, close quote. <laughs> now, Harawa states very specifically that the university is an elitist place, and its elitism takes, makes honor a matter for professors as much as for students, what do you make for the, what do you make of this essay 's call for a real sense of honor and dishonor among faculty
1: i 'm sure there's a lot of people who are, who are going to bristle at that word elitism, but I, I think it 's really a good kind of elitism in the sense that because you 've been giving us this, this opportunity that not that many people are given, you have a responsibility to use it appropriately. Um, another nice thing about his elitism is it allows room for all the disciplines, so he talks about this guy he knows at duke who who basically dedicated forty years of his life to studying lemurs and mm-hmm. and people wanted to know how he can justify doing that when there 's starving children in the world and and Harawa says he doesn 't need to justify it. Lemurs are worth saving. theology is worth studying women are worth liberating, all, all, whatever discipline you find yourself involved in, it, 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 it is a real good and the university should foster these goods. And yes, they're elitist goods in the sense that not that many people are going to be able to do them, but uh, that doesn't make them bad. But it does mean that if you are one of the lucky few, you owe it to both yourself and your institution and need the world at large to do it with honor. And, mm-hmm. and this is why it's important for scholars to be ethical uh, both in their scholarship and in their personal lives, and it, he he uses it to talk about how maybe universities ought to think about firing people for being unethical. Um, he says the only reason they fire people for being unethical now at most universities is coercive sexual relations um, but but there 's you know a whole host of other dishonorable things a scholar can do that will damage the the kind of fabric of the institution and and you know. Maybe they should be fired for it, and I, I couldn't help but wonder what Howarwas thinks about what's been happening up at Marquette University uh, the last few months with this uh, this conservative full professor who badmouthed a graduate student, graduate instructor by name on his personal blog, and got got his tenure revoked for it. I, I couldn't help but wonder if this is one of those dishonorable things that Howarwas would deem a fireable offense because. Uh, uh, he he might be in the minority there, although I'm sure he would enjoy that.
0: <laughs> I don't know. May, he would. Can you imagine Wass ever calling someone else out by name and it coming across really cranky? I can't.
1: <laughs> he doesn't call anybody out by name in this
0: essay. Well, that's true. But I've not read all of his, um, you know...
1: It's not just his, calling his, somebody else... His complete else. opus. It's not, just, <laughs> it's not just calling somebody else out by name. It, it, it is being being a full professor at a research university and calling out a graduate student by name—it's yeah, it's, it's the yeah. power there dynamic there that there. makes that uh-huh. so. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't know anybody who wouldn't say that. That I can't Adams—I think McAdams—I I don't, I don't remember. See, I'm calling him out by name, but he—he he has or had more power than I do. Um, I don't know anybody who wouldn't agree that that what he did was dishonorable. I, what most people would agree with, I, I think, in the, in universities, is that sort of dishonor shouldn't be punished by the revocation of tenure. And I—I I, I legitimately. Don't know what I think. I, I certainly <laughs> wouldn't, if I were running Marquette, I would not want to foster an environment where a guy like that was allowed to bully graduate students who weren't even his under his uh, supervision. You know, mm-hmm. it's a different department. Uh, I, I certainly wouldn't want to foster that environment. On the other hand, I don't want to foster the environment where full professors are terrified of losing their tenure if they speak their mind. So I, I don't know. I, I to, to me that that is an actual ethical debate waiting to happen. Um, Mm
2: -hmm. Right. Yeah. And I'm glad you went there, Michael, because I mean, I think this is a demonstration that, you know, having having this notion that honor should be a central part of university life doesn't make the conversation easy. It means that you're asking different questions when you engage in it
1: yeah and, and the real the, maybe the real problem is there didn 't seem to be any kind of actual conversation, although i mean it 's not like the President of Marquette University needs to call me up and and talk to me about it so, <laughs> so who, who am I to say there wasn 't a conversation
2: right right and and you know that's that 's one of the tricky things that you know again i mean I, this is why you don 't want to be the President of Marquette right now because if you, the more you make public you know the more it damages what people at large think about your institution the more Mm -hmm. you keep private the more they're going to make up stories about your institution because they don't have anything to go on right
0: right so i think within the terms of this particular essay uh the the professor's right to disagree disagree by name because naming is actually in this essay you're Uh supposed to be naming the people you disagree with in this essay yeah um and even disagreeing vehemently and passionately is something that he regards as a good instead of this kind of you know f- sort of false mask of objectivity. I don't feel anything about this; we're just having a conversation uh-huh. but but I think the it's the where where the <laughs> where the sin would lie it would be in his in his saying, you know we need to be able to have these passionate conversations of disagreements within the same institution and it not be war. Yeah. Um, That, that, that would be, uh, that would, it it would be the, you know, there were no Marquez of Kingsbury rules. There were no gloves. (laughs) You're right. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. You know, it was just, he, he just, he just straight up picked up the folding chair and went at her. Mm hmm. You know, to to bring back professional worth.
1: and and to to defend this guy who I just called dishonorable, I think he did email her and ask for her thoughts on this before he mm-hmm. posted it, but she didn't respond to him. But I, I, you know, to me the power differential is so great between the two of them they're not peers, and and so right. him kicking down looks much much different than if he were bad mouthing a number another member of his department.
0: Yeah, I think but,
2: that distinction is ethically important.
0: Could I bring up another thing from this section? <laughs> okay. Um. Well, when I printed it out, it's on page ten, but we're still still in the same section. Um, right. Thesis four. It uh, says any the only thing anyone can be fired today is coercive sexual harassment. You certainly can't be fired for laziness. But but university professors steal when they go into a classroom unprepared. That is not honorable behavior. Now, when Mm -hmm. I read that, the question I had was, in the terms of this essay, what does it mean for a university professor to go into a classroom unprepared? Because he's already set up a model of education that doesn't mean goods transferal. It means... The master performing mastership alongside the student, the student learning learning the craft alongside. Mm-hmm. Do brick do master bricklayers have to prep before they show up at the site and make a wall? They have to be sure there's bricks there. I mean, they have to be sure there's <laughs> bricks there. I, I, I guess I was what I was trying to think is is uh-huh. what in the terms of this essay would it mean for a professor to show up unprepared?
1: You don't read the text ahead of time. Okay. You, you you haven't thought about it substantially before you go in. I, you know what I thought of is, man, this guy didn't teach four classes a semester. Yeah.
3: Because uh, yeah, yeah. the, the, the truth
1: <laughs> about teaching four classes a semester is you're going to go in unprepared sometimes because you don't have enough time in the week to prepare.
0: Right, right. Well, have you never had the experience of of being able to do – more with a poem that you first saw thirty seconds ago on the fly in class than anyone in that class could have done, given the entire semester of research. Yes, I have. Oh, I have. I would say <laughs> you, I would say that you were prepared at that point. Maybe I exaggerate, but I would say that you're prepared. You're coming in with mastery.
1: Well, the st- the standard is going to be different depending on what you're teaching.
0: No, that's right. true too.
2: And I mean, I know that when I teach, you know, for instance, an in upper division you know literature rhetorical theory seminar uh when i know for a fact that i'm not going to be lecturing and in fact i'm going to studiously refuse to lecture Mm -hmm. i I prepare much harder for that than when i know that i'm at the steering wheel and i can basically break the class down into segments that i articulate ahead of time Mm
1: -hmm. but you guys if we could just get the administrators at our colleges to read and agree with this essay, we might be able to get down to two classes a semester. You don't want to make us into thieves,
3: do you?
0: <laughs> yes, we're like we're we're like Dickensian paupers, driven by necessity right. to crime.
1: I, I, you know, I hate I hate to I hate to put it that way, but I I think I, if he, if he's right, if if university professors steal when they go into a classroom unprepared. Uh, I think there is a sense in which loading our schedules down forces us to steal.
2: I, I don't think you're wrong. I don't
1: grubs does.
0: <laughs> well, I, 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 maybe, maybe I've just become more cynical and maybe I've learned to trust flying by my, by the seat of my pants more as I've gone. But you know, I, I I I I I tend to think that the best asset I bring into a classroom is is myself, and that you know that I've spent decades prepping for that class by by becoming me now. And you know, yes, I should I should read the text and I should know the text. But at the same time, the more the I, I've typically found that the more I bog down and prep for a single lesson, the more I fall into this, um, kind of there is a pile of things I know. Let me shovel it on you mode.
2: Oh, that's interesting.
0: And that when I go in. I'm not going to say less prepared, but when, when I go in with less material, I mm. find myself more flexible to, to, you know, to switch on the fly to the needs of the moment. Um, I find myself less burdened by the, the need to unburden myself of all of the prep that I did uh-huh. and so forth. And, and I'm, yeah,
1: th- there's truth to that. There's, there's such a thing as being prepared and too rigid and, and, I I don't go into the classroom with notes anymore. For example.
2: Oh gosh, I always do. Man, I it, it's interesting what's coming out this episode cause
1: Well, I used I, to I used to do nothing but lecture, and, and I mean now now it's. Well, come, so I
2: never lecture, but I still have a notebook full of notes. It it, it
1: mm-hmm. has come to where, I, and maybe I should because there are times when the the kind of conversation comes to a halt and I don't know where to go next because I don't have notes in front of me. Uh-huh. I have notes. I mean, when I when I read, I take notes. I take a lot of notes, and so I have some idea of what I want to talk about. But uh-huh. I, I I think there's probably different kinds of standards. Mm-hmm. But but I mean, what do you do if a student asks you a question that you can't answer? Then you go off I, script. <laughs> I,
0: I tell them I can't answer it, and then I, mean, I walk them through uh, the ways that I would go about answering the question what sources i would go to the ways that i would break the question down and look at it from different angles in order to make sure it was a good question do
1: do you do you think Uh, there's like that do you think there is such a thing as a question that if you weren't able to answer it it would make it would mean you were unprepared for the class yes okay so so then you you agree that even given your seat of the pants approach Mm -hmm. um there is a way to be unprepared by not having enough knowledge.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, if if mm. if I go in to teach introduction to Shakespeare and I don't know who's queen and, and so, or, so, you know.
1: So, so one thing to look at is that the standard is different on the level of course. Preparing for a freshman course doesn't take very long. A lot of times you may not even need to reread the, the – the, uh, Piece that you're talking about because you've taught it before or because you know right. it very well. Like I teach A and uh, Updike's A and P every semester, and I don't read it every semester. I've read it dozens of times. I don't need to keep reading it. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, a 300, 400 level course, yeah, you better be rereading it. You you because right. because <laughs> the students no longer are going to benefit from your kind of surface level analysis that you can do off the top of your head. They're mm-hmm. they're going to need you to know more and to be able to point out more so that they can learn to point out more. So even with this master-apprentice relationship that Hauerwas is talking about, as they proceed in their apprenticeship, you're going to have to prepare more. And I mean, on some levels, those upper-level classes are actually easier to teach because the students are more prepared and more capable. But at the same time, if, you, if you've got to stay ahead of them, there is such a thing as not being prepared, and, mm-hmm. and that standard is going to go up and up as you go through.
2: Right, mm-hmm. and I mean, I and I guess I've been in classes that were supposed to be seminar classes, but were really lecture classes, um, and I mean, I have one particular professor that I don't know if you guys had in grad school, but I'm not going to name him right now, but uh, he would come in and just basically talk about whatever came to his mind for three hours, and it almost never had anything to do with the assigned reading and I, I I really did come out of that class, I mean, feeling like I had wasted a course when I could have taken something where there was more of a focus. So, I mean, I, I, I guess I resonate with this bit maybe more than you two do because I've been on the business end of it. No, oh, and well,
1: I, I have too. So I, I don't know what <laughs> professor you're talking about, but I have one in mind as well.
3: Oh.
2: Yeah. Well, guys, um, we got to move on. I'd, I'd love to keep this up, but I – Actually, I've got a class that I've got to teach here in a little bit. So, David, I want to roll We'd the last two theses. hate to make you the unprepared, unprepared for it. That's right. Well, I actually, I prepared before we recorded, listeners, so you heard it here. I That's want to so roll cool. the last two theses into one conversation. The first one is, quote, the most compassionate thing you can do as a Christian is to turn someone in for cheating, close quote. The sixth one is, quote, if you think you can cheat at the university because this is just preparation for the real world, you will never be prepared for the real world, close quote. If the conversation about honor honor codes is Aristotelian, these two theses go straight Boethian on us. What about desire makes academic honor such an important virtue, one which stands to be quite important in the so-called real world?
0: Well, you had to point me out to the Boethius because I'm fairly certain that uh, you've taught Boethius more recently than I have.
2: Uh, <laughs> yes, just in the fall.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Whereas for me, it's been last fall okay like not this year but like 2013 three
2: semesters ago yeah
0: yeah any who's yeah the what, what you pointed to me to and once i once once i reviewed it i was like oh yeah you're right um it's book four um book four he's uh boethius is uh talking about, um, why is it that the, 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 the wicked apparently, you know, they seem to have power in the world and the good seem to be at their mercy. And Mm -hmm. so philosophy, uh, lady, lady philosophy develops this, um, this idea that no, in fact, um, only the good have the real power and and the wicked um seem almost completely powerless at all because she defines power as the ability to achieve and and the ability to get what you want which is which was really really funny because i was like oh wait cuz didn't stan say that this is not about getting what you want um but for in the consolation of philosophy what everyone wants really is the good mm mm-hmm. They might misidentify it, they might mislocate it, they might be profoundly mistaken about where it is and how they're to go about getting it, but ultimately everyone wants the good. But only the good go about getting it the right way, mm-hmm. by virtue. The, the, the natural way of, of, of getting good, of achieving the end of good, is through, is through virtue, um the wicked attempt to get good by merely following their their desires indulging their pleasures doing what makes them happy in the moment and that's that's another howarwas note um mm-hmm. who who says you have to be happy now and that's kind of his 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 point in this section that you know happiness now is not the greatest good um, and so the, the, the cheater getting caught, um, is actually, they're, they're, they're getting a good, um, because, uh, well, th- these are his words. You are reminding persons who cheat that they are betraying what they care about in terms of their being at the institution. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, they have pursued a good end, the end of staying at the good institution, by a bad means. All right, this is very Boethian. And so, when a cheater is turned in and punished, what you're doing is reminding them that that their means of trying to get that good, in fact, actually undercuts that good.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, they they are becoming worse instead of becoming better. They're getting, they're further from achieving the good they desire instead of closer to it. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, um, turning in cheaters is helpful um, because, uh, because ultimately it, it's better than letting them cheat because cheating is actually worse for them, worse for their soul, worse for them inside, worse for the way it shapes them. Than any punishment for cheating would be.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and what's interesting about this is the working assumption is that our students have souls. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, but I mean that that's not an assumption I, that the modern university makes, frankly. Right, well,
0: that's true. And and when I got to that, I said, you know what, this is this is my plagiarism speech.
2: Yeah, and, yeah. and mine yeah. too.
1: Mine too.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, my, will you, know, will you trade your soul you for
2: a grade course. point?
1: <laughs> well, then the the place where existentialism and medieval Catholicism meet is this notion that what you do becomes who you are. So that contrapasso. Mm-hmm. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago in the No Exit episode. That contrapasso in the Inferno. I, I, I you know, w- when I suspect a student has cheated, I often say, uh, you know, if you're the sum of your actions, is is this really an action you want to add to that sum? Do you really want to turn yourself into a liar?
2: Hmm. Hmm. And if and if you think you're going to cheat now, but somehow be honest when there's real money on the table and you've got a family to support. Right. You're dumber than you look.
1: Well, the great thing is he doesn't even bother supporting <laughs> that sixth thesis. He just says, uh, I, "This stands for itself."
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, guys, I I really hate to cut this short, but uh, now I've been convicted that if I don't do a little bit of prep for my class, that I'm going to be uh, stealing from my students. Uh, <laughs> so, I, so I do want to thank Michael and David for a good conversation today. Uh listeners, please chime in because this is a, a bombshell of an essay, like I said, as is most of Stan Howard's corpus, and we'd love to hear some conversation on it. But for now I'm gonna to have to wrap it up there. Uh, Michael, what are we talking about next episode? Well,
1: uh, next episode will go live on the day when the Comstock laws were first enacted. So we will be talking about banned books. Righteous. With Danny Anderson, I think. I hope. We haven't talked to yeah, him about yeah, it I'm yet.
2: Yeah, I'm going to go track him down today and try to make that so. Uh, so, listeners, until then, until we start talking about some banned books, uh, you can find us at ChristianHumanist.org on the web. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us, of course, on iTunes where you can give us five-star reviews so that more listeners can find what we do. You can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com and let us know what you think about Stan Hauerwas, honor in the university, and all sorts of groovy things. And until we hear from you next, this is Nathan Gilmore in behalf of David Grubbs and Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger.